Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And you remember a little while ago, we talked about famous battle horses. Like Incatatus. Like Incatatus. And remember how at least half of them seemed like they had been stuffed. So if you're the kind of person who keeps up with the latest in stuffed horse news... I am. <laughs> you've probably heard this. Roy Rogers' trusty steed Trigger just sold for $266,000 in New York City. And his dog Bullet sold for about $35,000. I think this would make a difficult decorative scheme in one's house, but I'm not very good at interior decorating. Bullet on one side of the door, trigger on the other, maybe. But the cool thing is, before the sale, we received this note and photos from people at Christie's Interiors. They're fans of the podcast, and they also auctioned off the memorabilia. And they told us that Trigger, Bullet, Buttermilk, and, quote, too many cowboy boots to count had all been stored in their warehouse for about five months. And understandably, they were kind of sad to see the stuff go. They had gotten a little attached to it. So they sent a request for an episode on famous cowboys in honor of their sale. And we're responding with, of course, but how do we decide on who to talk about? And Sarah was saying the first cowboys that she thought of weren't really cowboys at all. Yeah, they're outlaws and hustlers and lawmen. We've talked about a lot of them before. Um, Wyatt Earp, that kind of that kind of fellow. And the next ones we thought of were like Roy Rogers. They're TV stars, film cowboys, stuntmen, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, that type. So we wanted something that's a little bit between those two eras, something that's not yet so far removed from the real open range, real cowboys. And our answer was the Traveling Wild West show, which is a little bit vaudeville for our vaudeville-hungry listeners, a medley of horse tricks, gun tricks, and humor. But first, how did we get from the actual Wild West to the Wild West show in just a little more than a decade? If the cowboy is not the outlaw gunslinger we know from movies, what does he really do? To give you a definition before we start, real cowboys are horsemen who handle and drive cattle. Pretty obvious. They also do other tasks like branding and castrating the animals, or they break horses. And they obviously still exist today, but their real heyday was pretty short. It's 1867 to 1887, so only 20 years of, of hardcore cowboy times. Their techniques, using horses and lariats to herd cattle, were picked up as early as 1820 by pioneers observing Mexican vaqueros. And by the end of the Civil War, we've got a pretty big cattle industry in Texas, which is centered around the Texas Longhorn Steer, a hybrid of Spanish and English cattle. But we have a problem. And that's getting the beef out of Texas into the railroad where it can be shipped to northern cities where there are a lot of hungry people. And that's where the cowboys come in. And their job was to, in the fall, round up the herd, brand the ones that are unmarked or collect any unowned cows. And then they'd watch over them through the winter, make sure nothing terrible happened. In the spring, they would drive the cattle on trails out of Texas to the railheads in Missouri and Wyoming and Kansas. And I didn't know what a railhead was, if you want to explain, because I thought it was just an insult. <laughs> it does sound like an insult. It's just a, a rail terminus or the end of a line, a place where you go and ship your cattle off to the 
off to the cities. So within about a decade, this cattle ranching spreads across the Great Plains, all the way to Canada, as far west as the Rockies, and so do cowboys. But by about 1890 or so, fenced ranches replace open grazing. Railroad stops are often closer to the cattle, and ranching becomes a big business. So cowboys aren't aren't needed as much. They're, you don't need as many of them. They're not covering these huge long distances. But by this point, the cowboy has already entered American mythology. It doesn't matter that we don't need tons of cowboys anymore. The public can't get enough of this mythological sort of glamorized idea the of rugged young man of cowboys. Yeah, the stagecoach robbers, the railhead brawls. So we end up making up more news. And that's dime novels about the Wild West. They become really popular. And you can just imagine kids in big eastern cities reading about their famous um, western counterparts. But what's better than reading about cowboys is seeing a real live one, plus Indians, plus buffalo. So enter the first Wild West show and our first Wild West cowboy, Buffalo Bill. So one thing that makes the performers of Wild West shows so interesting, why we decided to go with this genre in particular, is that a lot of the performers actually come out of the real Wild West. Most really worked as cowboys. Some even split their time between the stage and the ranch, so they were still being authentic even when they were performers. And William Frederick Cody, born in 1846 in Iowa, is definitely one of these. He is the real deal. He starts work as a messenger boy in Kansas at age 11 when his father dies. And interestingly, the firm that he works for is Russell Majors and Waddell. That sounds familiar. Yeah, that's because these are the guys who financially back the Pony Express. So there's, yeah, as we'd mentioned, there are some people who think that Buffalo Bill was part of the Pony Express, some people who don't. He was definitely involved with the financial backers. Proto-Pony Express. There you go. (laughs) So he's also doing some horse wrangling and some hunting, which will prove to be valuable entertainment skills in his future. He joins the service for the Civil War, and then he continues to work for the U.S. Army after the war. He is a messenger and at times a dispatch bearer and scout for troops out of Kansas. His side job was hunting buffalo to feed the men building the Union Pacific Railroad, and he earned his nickname, Buffalo Bill, by killing 4,280 buffalo, something that sounds kind of terrible today. Yeah, not quite as impressive of a stat these days. Also terrible, 16 Indian attacks, so... Those are just some basic numbers for Buffalo Bill. His real reputation comes from scouting, and he's got this near-perfect spatial memory, which is something to be envied, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, and he's employed by the 5th Cavalry as a guide because he, he goes somewhere and he can remember exactly where everything is, how to get there, trails. It's pretty amazing skill. The exact opposite of all of my skills. <laughs> His work earns him a Medal of Honor in 1872, which is later revoked since he was a civilian and then given back to him posthumously. Make up your mind, guys. So newspapers love Buffalo Bill and eat him up. And dime novels do, too, which is weird to think of a real-life guy being a character in dime novels. It's fan fiction. (laughs) It is. That's another proto thing, isn't it? So when author Ned Buntline, whose real name is E.Z.C. Judson, I don't know why he... Picture periods between capital letters, not like E.Z.C., 
It's, you know, <laughs> ECC. Uh, so Buntline slash Judson asks him to star in this drama called The Scouts of the Prairie that he's written. And Cody signs on. He's realizing that this is going to be a possibly good way to cash in on his dime novel fame. And he's not the greatest actor in the world, but he's really fun to watch. His stage tricks are good and he's a success. When he's not acting, he's pulling a city slickers and taking rich guys and noblemen out west. So he's got the best of both worlds going on here. And it's not long before he decides to stage his own show, a variety act. He'd have cowboys rough riding, roping, shooting, and bronco busting. There would be staged fights with Indians and recreations of frontier life. And it would all be going down at your local canvas tent. So Ackworth, Georgia, look out. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And it's not entirely a new idea, though. Barnum had included a Wild West act in his show way back in 1876, which is the heyday of cowboys. But Buffalo Bill and his partner W.F. Doc Carver's show is definitely beyond what anyone else has done. And they call it the Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the World. And their first show is in 1883. And these shows are are nothing to laugh about. They are four hours long, which people must have had longer attention spans than they do today. I can't imagine a four-hour show. No. And what you get in your four hours are a buffalo hunt, of course. Uh, You get to see other wild animals like elk, bear, moose, and deer. There's a pony express ride, a stagecoach capture, and eventually two big-name stars taking part, Sitting Bull, as in the Sitting Bull, and Annie Oakley, who is the next star on our list. So Annie Oakley, she's really born Phoebe Ann Mosey, and a fun early story about her is that she paid the mortgage on the family farm at age 15 with her hunted game. So she's obviously a sharpshooter, but she has a pretty traumatic childhood. Her father dies early, and her mother, who's left with too many kids to take care of, lets out Annie as a servant. And she suffers from abuse, but finally manages to work her way home and become the family breadwinner. You can imagine she's not willing to let anything happen to her again. And soon, her shooting skills are worth more than the game she can hunt. She enters a shooting contest against Frank E. Butler, a vaudeville performer, and he's said to have laughed when he saw that his opponent was this tiny little five-foot girl. But she wins, which must have impressed him, because in 1876, the two get married and tour the circuits as Butler and Oakley, a stage name she took from a Cincinnati suburb. And in 1885, they ditch their own outfit, Butler switches to management, and Oakley signs with Buffalo Bill, going by Miss Annie Oakley, the peerless lady wingshot. And it's Sitting Bull who gives her the more famous nickname, Little Sure Shot. So what can Annie do? Here's a list. She can hit a dime tossed into the air. She can shoot cigarettes from her husband's lips or shoot cigarettes from the future Kaiser Wilhelm II's lips, which... Whatever lips are available. I can't imagine his people would let him do that, but apparently. Uh, She could shoot a playing card tossed in the air full of bullets. And she could split a playing card held on end at 30 paces. These are just a few of Annie's amazing tricks for you to contemplate. And they take her around the world. She even meets Queen Victoria in 1887, who saw the show three times in a row. And she works with Buffalo Bill for 16 years, 
starring in the show, except for one brief period when she left him for his arrival, the next star on our list. And that is Pawnee Bill. And just a warning, I don't know how this happened, but every man on this list is either named Bill or Will. So good luck keeping them straight. Well, it's, it's better possibly than his real name, which is Gordon William Lilly. Gordon doesn't work well for a cowboy, I feel. Or calling him Lilly, his last name doesn't sound particularly great either. But that's what not we're to doing. insult any cowboys named Gordon. <laughs> so, Lily slash Pawnee Bill, born Valentine's Day, eighteen sixty. His family moves to Kansas after their flour mill burns down, and it's there where he makes the acquaintance of the Pawnee people who were wintering near Wellington, and they had just been removed from their lands in Pawnee, Oklahoma. And he works as a trapper in Indian Territory for a while with Trapper Tom McLean, not to be confused with the Mad Trapper, and supplements his income with waiting tables, working as a cowboy, picking up work where he can get it. He continues his relationship with a Pawnee by teaching and interpreting for the U.S. Indian agent. And in 1883, Buffalo Bill brings him on for his inaugural show to coordinate the Pawnee troupe of entertainers. And it's while touring with Buffalo Bill that Pawnee Bill meets a teenage Quaker girl named May Manning watching these shows parade. And he marries her two years later. And then it's just mentioned in our source that she turns into a <laughs> sharpshooter. So I guess the marriage was going Magical well. Magical skill that can be acquired. So her family suggests that Pawnee Bill break out from Buffalo Bill and start up his own show. And he does that in 1888. Surprisingly, You'd think with a sharpshooting wife and his own skills, it would do all right. It's a financial failure, but he has other stuff going on. Namely, opening up Oklahoma's unassigned lands. On April 22nd, 1889, he leads a land run of 4,000 men to claim the territory, which the plan is basically line up on horseback, stake your claim, and there are tens of thousands of participants and his prominence with the Oklahoma Boomers makes him nationally famous, which means it's the perfect time to start another Wild West show. Yeah, this time it's Pawnee Bill's historical Wild West Indian Museum and Encampment. And this one is a big success. May Lily does her sharpshooting on horseback. And by 1908, he's able to merge his show with Buffalo Bill, so back to the original. And they bill it as... Buffalo Bill's Wild West and Pawnee Bill's Great Far East show. But a note on Pawnee Bill, Buffalo Bill was not that great at managing his fortune. You'd think he'd be a very wealthy man with this original Wild West show. It doesn't turn out like that. Pawnee Bill, on the other hand, is a very successful businessman, and he gets into oil and real estate and motion pictures and banking. And I kind of think of him as the modern Western man. You know, on the one hand, he's very into preserving the Old West. Uh, he gets into lobbying for buffalo protection. He helps establish the Wichita Mountains National Wildlife Refuge. But he's also the modern man who wants to bring business into the West. He advocates for building highways. I think he even has a highway named after him at one point. But Bill and Bill have another competitor, the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch and Wild West Show, and their star is the next cowboy on our list, Bill Pickett. So Bill Pickett is Bill, not... Bill, Bill, and versus Bill. We'll, we'll have a Will coming up, too. So Bill Pickett isn't just your average cowboy. He's a bulldogger, and in case you don't know what that means... 
This is what you do. You grab the steer by its horns and twist its neck, and then you bite its nose or upper lip before flipping it to the ground, which is insane sounding. And it's seriously how dogs wrestle steer, which I didn't even know dogs were used to wrestle no. steer. And I'm going to bring this up at my next Georgia Bulldogs football game, yeah. by the way. <laughs> it would be a different kind of bulldogger for sure. So uh, there's a modified version of this that still happens in rodeos today. If you're a rodeo fan, you should feel free to write us and tell us about it. William Pickett was born in 1870 near Austin. He was one of 13 kids, which is quite a lot of children, said me, who's one of six. And he was the descendant of American Indians and black slaves. After finishing the fifth grade, he started ranch work and did some tricks on the weekends in town. And by 1888, he and his four brothers start a horse-breaking business. He entered his first rodeo in Taylor, Texas, and in 1900, he got sponsored by the rodeo entrepreneur Lee Moore. Soon, he's working with the Miller Brothers on the 101 Ranch and Wild West show, billed as the Dusky Demon. And he's really good at handling domestic animals, wild animals, and doing those amazing bulldogging stunts. And his quintessential performance comes in Mexico City in 1908. This is a great story. He wrestles a Mexican fighting bull for a full seven minutes. But finally, the outraged audience just freaks out that he's doing it wrong because you don't wrestle a Mexican fighting bull. You wave the red flag and you get out your sword. And so they're thinking he's doing it completely wrong. This is not bullfighting. Nice try, Bill Pickett. Still, it must have been a pretty cool show. When he's not performing, he's working as a cowboy or appearing in rodeos. It kind of reminded me of those early baseball players we talked about in the Satchel, Satchel Page episode. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not a part-time job, not a seasonal job. You've got to work year-round if you're in this business. And to appear in those rodeos, he's identified as Indian instead of black so he can compete against white people. Since the era of the Wild West show dovetails into film, Bill Pickett does some work out of Jacksonville, starring in films like The Crimson Skull and The Bulldogger, an apt name. (laughs) But he dies from a ranch injury in 1932. I think, was he kicked in the head? Kicked in the head by a horse, yeah. And finally, our most successful crossover star from Wild West to Wild West show to film is Will Rogers. A Will instead of a Bill at last. So William Penn Adair Rogers was born in 1879 in Cherokee Territory. It's Oklahoma today. He was part Cherokee on both sides, and he grows up on his father's ranch and at boarding schools. But because his father has some money, he's able to travel a bit, which is important for considering his later life. He he gets a wanderlust bug pretty early. And he even gets to see the World Exposition in Chicago in 1893, which I have to Jealous. imagine influenced his desire to become a performer. But he's into the range, not into the classroom or settling down into the family business. So at 18, he leaves his Missouri military school to move to the Texas Panhandle and work on ranches. He may even have applied to be one of Roosevelt's Rough Riders, side note. But by about 1898, he goes home to manage the family ranch's cattle while his father works in banking and tribal politics. Yeah, he he was hoping his son would sort of take over the farm business and he could 
go off to the city and do his work. But that doesn't work out because Will cannot stay away from the action for long. And in 1900, he and his friend Dick Paris go to South America. Their boat goes from Galveston to New York to London to Buenos Aires. And when he can't find work there, he gets a job on a cattle boat bound for South Africa. And so he ends up in South Africa and he gets another job driving a herd through the country. This is, he's a really great example of good luck with your jobs, I guess, just going out on a limb and something coming along. So while he's driving this herd through South Africa, he runs into a Wild West show, of course, led by Texas Jack and gets a job as a trick roper. And he's billed as the Cherokee kid and works there for a while. He gets a glowing recommendation from Texas Jack when he finally leaves the show. I have the very great pleasure in recommending Mr. W.P. Rogers, the Cherokee kid, to circus proprietors. He has performed with me during my present South African tour, and I consider him to be the champion trick rough rider and lasso thrower of the world. He is sober, industrious, hardworking at all times, and is always to be relied upon. I shall be very pleased to give him an engagement at any time should he wish to return. Just the kind of recommendation you'd like from a a former professor or boss. Definitely. So Will travels the world a little bit more and finally makes it back to Oklahoma in 1904, which conveniently is just in time for the St. Louis World's Fair, where he does rope tricks. And soon he's on the stage in Chicago. At one show, he lassos a dog that runs up on stage. Inverse bulldogging. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, He's performing in New York. His big break comes in 1913 when he gets a job at the Midnight Frolic. Which that doesn't sound very sounds nice. Sounds a little sketchy, but it's a show at a theater owned by Florence Sigfield Jr., which is obviously a big stepping stone to a career in entertainment. He joins the Follies in 1916, and this is very steady work for him, something he's able to come back to. And he's also able to hone his jokes while he's there. So What was once his routine of rope tricks is now interspersed with occasional commentary and becomes a comedy show. He bills himself as the Oklahoma cowboy great lasso expert or the lasso king, and he begins starring in movies, moving his family out to L.A. and returning to work on the Follies when when business isn't so great. Yeah, and... Of course, the early movies are silent movies, which isn't exactly suited to his style. He... So much of his routine was based on his spoken comedy. Snappy patter. Yeah, but he is able to write some of the uh, the cards that they show in silent movies. And obviously, it's a good transition for him to go into talkies. But it's not just movies and Zigfield Follies performances that he's doing. He gets into speaking engagements, books. He writes syndicated newspaper columns, so he's your your everyman for comedy. He's really folksy. He is able to make fun of everyone in a way that doesn't hurt anyone's feelings. And he has a motto we liked, lead your life so you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Yeah, he's full of little witty remarks like that. And he travels the world some more, probably in a different style than he did when he was a a young man, but he befriends Calvin Coolidge. He mingles with Edison and Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. But unfortunately, at the height of his fame, he dies in an Alaskan plane crash in 1935. And 
it's not long after that that the age of the Wild West show is definitely over. It was certainly dying down long before it, but the last of the big shows ends in 1938 with Colonel Tim McCoy's Wild West. And when it ended in 1938, that made me a little bit sad because these Wild West shows sound really cool, to be perfectly honest. They sound great. And I think we mentioned this on our vaudeville episodes about how people didn't know what they were. They trade vaudeville for television. They don't know what they're missing. Video killed the radio star. (laughs) But seriously, like as far as big spectacles go, I'm trying to think of, I know the rodeo does come to Georgia and, you know, we have monster truck rallies, but we have nothing true. We have nothing like a Wild West show. Neither does anyone else. No, it sounds great. But I guess if you know of any little Wild West shows, county fair kind of things, let us know. We'd love to hear about your own local variety if it exists. You can also follow us on Twitter at Missed in History and keep up with what we're doing on a daily basis or join our Facebook fan page where we post a lot of links to cool history news that's coming out. And if you're interested in other kinds of entertainment, we've got some great articles on sword swallowing and walking through fire. Midway type stuff. Exactly. If you'd like to search on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 